Good morning, church. How's everybody doing? Yeah? Everybody's good? It's good to see you all this morning. A couple of housekeeping items for us as we uh, begin uh, this time together and before we get to the, the message this morning. I want to reiterate some of the things you heard from Caroline. Uh, this is an important time for you to be considering discipleship groups. We kind of look at those as these yearly commitments, uh, an opportunity for us to really invest in one another, and we try to aim for that year to go from September to October, sorry, September to August. And obviously, we're, we're on a little bit of a different cycle as a result of the pandemic and having so many launch in the spring. But these next few, next few weeks through September, if you're not a part of a discipleship group, man, now's the time to really evaluate that and get plugged in and be a part of one. Caroline's a great source of information for that as our Minister of Pastoral Care and Discipleship, if you have any questions about how to do that. Another uh, quick update uh, as it pertains to just business matters of the church. This last Wednesday, we did have a called church business meeting, and one of the main items on the agenda for that evening was our church budget for the next year. Our fiscal year goes from October to September, and so we're getting ready to start a new one. And just so you all know, with, with the new way we have to do business meetings, we can't actually vote virtually. We have to do an online survey, so I'm sharing the results of that business meeting this morning. But the, the budget and the nominations for various committees were all approved, and so thank you for those of you that were able to participate on Wednesday. But I want to use that as an opportunity just to remind you all of how to approach this next year, because I will tell you, you know, a lot of times when we start having a conversation about budget, our eyes can kind of gloss over, and we kind of can be like, oh man, you know, this isn't really a favorite conversation. But in reality, I'm incredibly excited about the budget and, and really because that's driven by vision. And what I want you all to know uh, as a church family is that our approach has not been, man, we're, we're facing a pandemic and there are all these limitations and challenges. And so let's just come up with a couple of interim solutions to just try to get by in hopes that this will all blow over and then we can go back to normal. That is not our mentality here. Right? Our, our mentality is what can we do today in this reality, in this present moment to flourish as the church? And that's what our vision is. And, and that vision, I think, has been captured in our budget. And, and a lot of times when we have these conversations about budget, we have this mindset that it's, oh, it's, it's paying for utility bills or salaries or things along those lines, when in reality, it really is about a collection of God's people pursuing vision and pursuing his call. And so let me just give you a word of how you can begin to prepare for that as a posture of worship in your own life. And I'll elaborate a little bit more on this, probably just a little bit some next week. But what I would encourage you to do is to remember that we all play a part of this. And what we advocate here at our church is not a formula, right? It's more than just a numerical amount that you need to consider, that it really is a posture that we strive for. And the posture that we strive for is that we want to be a church that's filled with people that are willing to give generously, sacrificially, and cheerfully, right? And so those things need to be on display in our life, right? That, that we are excited about giving cheerfully, sacrificially, and generously. And so whatever that looks like for you is something that I would encourage you to begin praying towards and be willing to commit to, right? Because what, what we believe is that what makes this so thrilling is that it's not just that we're going to put together some money in a plate to pay the bills, but that we really believe that when God's people come together with a mindset of worship that is willing to sacrifice the very things that have been entrusted to them in order for this vision, this calling to be pursued, that there will be a mark that is left on this community around us and his kingdom will be advanced. 
right? That, that these things that we've laid out are gonna impact the people across the street and, and schools in this community and, and even ourselves. And so if there's anything that we can do that can bring other people into greater proximity of the sight and sound of the incarnation, then we will do it. If that means surrendering our time, if it means surrendering our gifts, if it means surrendering our finances, whatever it is, we want to freely and expectantly give to see God glorified. That's what we're doing. And so my request to you as we finish out this year is take these next few weeks and begin praying to that. Like pray about what does that look like for me? Am I exhibiting that? And, and am I willing to commit to that so that if that's through this church and is a part of this church, man, this is a great way to, to experience that, that posture of worship. And we can do that collectively as we head into a new year. But even if it's in other arenas, man, that, that's our call as believers, to demonstrate that sort of worship in every arena of life. And so I put that before you this morning just as an update. Uh, I ask you to take the next couple of weeks to pray about it. I'll give you some more specifics next week of, of what that might look like in some ways that we need to approach this new uh, fiscal year. But for the most part, um, I'm just excited and excited about where God is leading us. And so as we get ready to, to pour into his word, let's pray for God's blessing as he continues to lead us, not just in this next year, but for this next few moments this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do love you, and we are so grateful for what you're doing in the life of this church. We're grateful for the folks and the many people who come together and offer their lives as an act of worship, sacrificially giving of their time, sacrificially giving of, of their gifts, their resources, all the things that you've entrusted, Father, to us. May we continue to move forward in all of our lives with such a posture of worship. And Father, let us do so sacrificially. Let us go above and beyond by demonstrating compassion to those around us. Let us do so um, generously, God, never holding back, but always wanting to give more and, and to do so with a certain intentionality that sees lives changed. And may we do so cheerfully. Father, I pray that no matter how we engage with this world around us, may, may the people that see us and look within on us at least see joy. May they see a celebration. May they see us constantly declaring the praises of your name. And with that being our goal, Father, we pray that your word would once again enrich us and embolden us and speak to us this morning to show us how it is that we can become more aware of your presence and all that you're doing in our lives. We love you, Father, and we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, so it was several years ago. I, I honestly don't know exactly how long ago it was. I want to say it was probably like six, seven years ago. And I was sitting in my house, and it was my grandmother's birthday. I know that much. It was my grandmother's birthday. And she was in town visiting my sister up in Frisco because their birthdays were one day apart. And so it was late that night, and I was telling my wife about my day, and she was asking about it. And I mentioned, well, yeah, I called my grandmother earlier today because it's her birthday. And Jennifer was like, oh, yeah, it's her birthday. I need to call her. And so she quickly grabbed her phone, and she, she called my grandmother. And my wife has this kind of I don't know, tendency. She can't just sit and talk on the phone. I don't know if anybody else is like that. She has to pace and walk. And so she never stays in our house when she's on the phone. She's always like outside walking up and down the street. So she gets on the phone and she goes into our backyard. And so she's out there talking to my grandmother and I'm sitting down on my couch and all of a sudden my phone rings and it's my sister, which to me was a little odd because I was like, well, I know Jennifer's talking to my grandmother and she's up there. It didn't think too much about it. It just kind of struck me as odd. So I answer the phone and my sister's on the other line. She goes, hey, Jennifer needs you. She can't get your attention, but she's apparently stuck in your backyard. I don't fully understand what's going on, but you, 
me to check on her. And so I look out my backyard. We've got all these windows that look into the backyard, and I can see my wife standing in the middle of the backyard waving at me like this, you know? And so I get a little bit closer, and I walk up, and I can see that she's pointing to the patio, and she's going, snake, snake. And I look over, and right there on our patio table is a giant four-foot-long snake. Now, this isn't like one of those fishing stories where it was really like this big. Like, this was a all-across-the-table giant snake, okay? And so my wife was terrified to move. So I, I clearly don't go past the patio table. I go through the garage and go around to the back door or into the side gate to our backyard, and she's like stuck there. And she's like, I'm not moving until I'm not walking past that snake, and I'm not walking in this yard in case there are any others. So it's my chance to be a hero, right, to kind of rescue my wife. And so I get a flashlight, and I safely bring her back inside, and I go back out in the driveway. And I'm looking through my backyard and I see this snake just laying on the table, like lifting its head up, looking to get something to eat. And I just think to myself, I don't wanna do this. Like there is no part of me that wants to do what's about to have to happen. I do not, I hate snakes. I'm afraid of them. I, I'm not gonna pretend, I don't wanna do this. But then I sat there and I thought like my son, who at the time was I think around two or three years old, I was like, if I don't kill this thing, it's gonna chill out in my yard. It's gonna have a bunch of babies. It's gonna attack us and kill us all. And my son's gonna find it one day. Like he's gonna get bit. Like I, I have to, like I need to do this. It wasn't an option, right? I didn't have that luxury to not deal with this. And so I knew I needed a weapon. I looked in my garage and I picked my weapon of choice and I found this like kind of pickaxe thing that's got the pointy side, you know, and then it's got the big heavy flat side. And I thought, okay, this, this will do it. And so I slowly walk up to the patio table and I'm thinking to myself, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna have to do this more than once. So I, everything I got, like all strength, all emotion, all energy, like I, in one swipe right here, and we're just gonna call it done. And so I sure enough, I get close enough, snake doesn't see me yet. And I mean, I give it everything I have. And I just wham, and completely miss. I mean, absolutely didn't even get close. Launch the snake into the air, because I hit the table. It served like it's like a catapult. It goes into the air, falls down on the ground, and immediately coils and is ready to strike at me. So like I back off. I don't think there was a scream. There might have been a scream, but I don't think there was. And now I'm just like watching the thing. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not messing with him while he's ready to strike. And so I kind of think I'm just going to wait him out. So we're in this like staring contest, and I'm just waiting for him to chill. He finally, after a great amount of time, settles down, and he begins to slither away into the flower bed. And it's not like just a little, it's like there's a ton of stuff in there. I'm like, if he gets in that, there's no chance I'm going to find him. So I quickly like run after him and I'm like knocking over chairs and stuff. And I, and I hit him and I cannot get him on the back of the tail. And I pull him back onto the patio and I just start going, wham, wham, wham. Now I thought with a weapon like that, that killing a snake would be like slicing through a banana. But it's really like hitting the tire rubber, like over and over again. That thing was so I'm like, when are you gonna die? This is crazy. And, and finally, after so many strikes, I start to see blood and, and the snake stops moving. And so I just go inside and I'm like amped, just like this. And I sit down and Jennifer's like, did you kill it? And I'm getting a glass of water. And I'm like, no, I think so. You know, and she goes, well, did you get it off the porch? And I'm like, well, not yet. Like I need to just compose myself. So I go back out on the patio to dispose of the snake only to discover what? He wasn't dead. Right, he was still moving around. I'm like, how is this thing 
still alive. So I realized I needed a different weapon. I go back and I put back the, uh, the little pickaxe thing and I just get your standard old garden hoe and, and I bring it over there. And now the snake is back under the chair and the table so I can't strike at it. So I have to come up with a new strategy and a new technique. And so I just barely and slowly put the garden hoe over the snake's head slowly so that it doesn't strike at it. And then I just force down, right? And as soon as I do, man, the, the tail and the body just like starts flapping like crazy and going nuts. And I'm like, this is still not working. What is my next move? And I realized that my best option is that the, the patio has those crevices between the wood boards. And so I just slide the snake's head over one of those crevices and guillotine, victory, right? Finally, cut the snake's head from the body. Victory was mine. I got this great little picture of me holding, the, I forgot to bring it this morning, I should have, but I got this great picture of me holding this dead snake's carcass and all this other stuff. And so after that happened, the next day I went to work and I was telling a colleague about it and telling him this whole story. And he looked at me, he goes, man, so did you just feel like more of a man after killing a snake like that? And I said, no, because I was so terrified the entire time. I felt like less of a man. And that was really kind of the point of me sharing this story, right? That I was so overwhelmed with fear in that moment that the only reason I was even willing to engage in that was because I saw that it was necessary, right? I saw that it was needed, right? I didn't want to do it. I didn't have the option to not do it though. And that's something that's pretty important for us to grasp because a lot of times we confuse wants and needs in our life, right? But it's typically, we think the wants that we have are necessities. And so we say, well, I want a big house or I need a big house. I need a new car. I need new shoes. When the reality is, is those are just luxuries. Those are options. You don't have to have them. You want them, right? So a lot of times that's how we confuse wants and needs, but sometimes we get it flipped. Sometimes there are things that we classify as wants that we think are optional, that we think are luxuries, when in reality, they're necessities, especially with spiritual matters. But, well, I, I wanna go to church, I wanna pray, I wanna read the word, I wanna tell people about Jesus, but those things are really kind of optional. When in reality, they're necessities. It shouldn't be optional, right? And what I want us to discover today is that when we shift that thinking and we quit classifying so many things in our spiritual life as being potential wants and luxuries that are optional, but really seeing that they are necessities, what happens is we become fearless. And we're able to embrace and encounter even the most difficult situations because we know it's necessity. And that's what we're gonna find as we move to the last little moment of this series on the armor of God. So grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter six. I'm really looking forward to, to diving into this today. Here's what we're gonna do. We've been reading 10 through 18 for the last several weeks that we've been going through this, this series, but I decided after preparing this week that I actually really wanted to fuse in verses 19 and 20 as well, because I think they fit a little bit better with what we're gonna be talking about. So I'm gonna read through 20 today, but I'm actually gonna kind of take my time as we read through it just to kind of reiterate and emphasize some of the main points that Paul is trying to drive home in this series, okay? So if you got your Bibles, follow along with me here in chapter six, verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. This is the whole thing that Paul is trying to emphasize, right? This is his climatic statement, his concluding point of emphasis and his main thrust that we need to understand is he's saying, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, right? That, that's what we want. That, that is not something that we should look at as being optional. 
and being something where we kind of want to have. That's the necessity that you and I live our lives in such a way that we are strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. How? How do we do that? He continues to explain. So put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, right? You and I are gonna face an inevitable conflict with evil, right? So stop hating flesh and blood, right? Stop hating your neighbor, stop hating the politician, the president, stop hating the, the advocate, the, the anarchist, the whatever label you assign it, stop hating those people because that's not who you are fighting against, right? All that animosity that we see, that's a tactic and a ploy of the evil one. Our war is against these spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. And so if we're gonna be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, we have to understand that we're engaged with this conflict and therefore we must put on the full armor of God so that when that day of evil comes and we experience it personally, we will be able to stand your ground. That's what he's telling you to do. That if you're gonna be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, you're gonna be able to stand your ground unmoved, unwavering against this conflict with evil. And so therefore, put on the belt of truth. Don't give in to lies. Don't give in to deception, right? Put on the breastplate of righteousness in place that we know what is just, that we know what is right. We know what is good. With the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, right? That we're on the move to declare this message of reconciliation, reconciliation with God, reconciliation with others, that we live this life of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, right? All those tactics that the enemy tries to use against us, we maintain that faith so that we don't make ourselves more vulnerable to more deadly assaults and attacks. We take the helmet of salvation, never forgetting this plan of salvation, this plan of rescue and redemption that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we also take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, something we talked about last week, the importance to cling to his every single word. And so now we have the fully armed soldier prepared to stand in the strength of the, of the mighty God, right? To, to stand in his mighty power, right? To be strong in the Lord. And so what's the first thing the fully armed soldier does? Does, does the person run into battle? Does it shout a battle cry? Does it, does it sit down and wait for the battle to come to him? No, the first thing the fully armed soldier does is pray. That's the first thing, which is why I put verses 18 through 20 in this whole discussion on the armor of God, because this is how you're going to stand your ground. This is how you further your ability to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You dress yourself in his armor and then you pray. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So I love the way that Paul calls us to, to a final concluding statement here on this, this discussion on the armor of God, but this emphasis on prayer. So we're going to really kind of break this up by looking at what it means to pray in the Spirit, 
but then also looking at some of the posture and the content that Paul specifically points to here in Ephesians chapter six, the content of the prayers that he's trying to get us to, to pray or participate in. So to begin this, this discussion today, we really wanna talk about what does it mean to pray in the spirit, right? And so once again, the spirit makes a very important appearance. He did last week in a discussion of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And here we are uh, kind of continuing that journey with the call to pray in the spirit. Last week, we talked about how Jesus teaches us in John chapters 14 and 16, that when the Holy Spirit comes, the advocate comes, he's gonna remind us of everything that Jesus taught. He's gonna remind us of everything that Jesus said. He's the spirit of truth that's gonna guide us into all truth. And so naturally, not only do we use the word of God, mindful of the spirit, but that's how we should pray. Now in Ephesians, we don't get an elaborate description on what praying in the spirit looks like, but we do get an elaborate description in one of Paul's other letters that I wanna quickly take a detour to in order for us to understand what praying in the Spirit really means and and what we can learn from it. And so if if you can follow along with me, flip over to Romans chapter eight, where I'm gonna quickly read just a few excerpts from Romans chapter eight and, and use this as a guide for us to better understand what it looks like to pray in the Spirit. So I'm gonna gonna follow along here at just different parts. We have it up on the screen, but I'm gonna pick it up in verse nine. And there's this whole powerful description really through the whole chapter about the difference between the realm of the Spirit and the realm of the flesh. In verse nine, Paul begins to explain, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subjected to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but rather the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I'm gonna skip down actually even further to verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Okay, there's a lot in there, so I'm just gonna briefly try to summarize it for us because this to me paints the picture of what it means to pray in the Spirit. First of all, here's what we need to recognize is that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. Do you believe that? Do you live that way? Do you pray that way? The same spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. That is remarkable. And so often we seem to gloss over that or miss that. 
And what we see is that when we begin to realize the work of the Spirit in our lives and we begin to put to death the misdeeds of the body, what happens? We're set free. We're no longer slaves to fear. And the reason we're not fearful is because we are praying to not some distant deity, but to a loving Father. We are children, sons, and daughters. And so even in our weakness, when we don't know what to pray for, and it's wordless groans, whatever it may sound like or look like, but we we don't even know what to pray for, even in those moments, the Spirit of God intercedes for you. That's remarkable, right? So if, if, if I were to summarize all that, what I would, I'd probably gravitate to the word assurance, right? That to pray in the Spirit has this unwavering assurance, this, this knowledge, this confidence that the same Spirit that is in us is the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, has set us free from fear because we are now able to cry out to a loving Father, and that Spirit intercedes for you in your weakest moments, even when you don't know what to pray for. That's remarkable. That's what it means to pray in the Spirit. And so with that as context, Paul says, so therefore, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. That's, that's what he's encouraging the church in Ephesus to do, right? The, the word occasion is the same word that's used, uh, it's kairos, it's, a, it's another word that's used for time. And, and so when you look at the rest of that verse, there is this totality to it, right? It's this like, this kind of constant refrain that we see in so many of Paul's letters of this unceasing prayer. But part of what I want you to see is it's not necessarily saying here that it's like, okay, chronologically throughout the day, every minute, every second, every hour, just pray, like wake up and pray, go to bed, wake up and pray, go to bed, right? Now that would be a good habit, right? I'm not discouraging that, but that's just not exactly what this word is saying. Kairos is about a specific moment, right? A particular moment. The way I often think of it is seasons, right? And so what he's saying is that on all, all occasions, any moment, any season, any sort of prayer, any sort of request, present those to God. And so a question that I have for you this morning is, what season are you in? Like, what occasion brings you here? Is your life in a season right now that's filled with frustration and anxiety and stress? Is it filled with joy and favor and and all these great opportunities? Is it filled with pain and sorrow and grief and struggles? Is it filled with temptation and failure? Like, what season are you in? And what I want you to see is that no matter the season that you're in, the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is in you, interceding for you, even in your weakness. There's nothing, there are, there are no seasons that don't warrant your ability to come to a loving Father in prayer. And that's incredible. That, that is an incredible reality that we get to benefit from. Right? And so, so that's the call to pray in the Spirit. Now, now, Paul also complements this with a reminder of the posture that that should foster within us. Right? So his next word is, so be alert. Right? Be, be awake. It's, it's this word that means an ever state of wakeful watchfulness. Right? It's, it's this constant um, alertness that is to be on display in our lives. Right? And I think one of the reasons that's important for us to call attention to it is because a lot of times we're awake physically, but asleep spiritually. Right? We, we take these benefits, these blessings 
of Christ and all he has done for us. We take the spirit of God, we take all these things, this armor, and then we just kind of set it aside. And we go on autopilot through life and we just kind of, kind of occasionally think about the things that God has given us or the things he's called us to. And man, that is not the alertness that should be evident in our life, right? Think about the context of going into this battle, right? And, and, and think about going into war. What kind of soldier do you wanna be standing next to? You wanna stand next to the one that is ready and alert and vigilant or the one that's drowsy and asleep and, and indifferent and not paying attention, right? That's, that's the posture of a follower of Christ, an ever state of readiness, right? Constantly ready to, to respond to whatever circumstances may be presented to them. And so with that posture and with that understanding of what it means to pray in the spirit, Paul then gives us here in Ephesians 6 a couple of things that might fill the content of our prayers. And the first thing he says is keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And I, and I love the simplicity of that instruction. Right? The, the, the word keep on implies persistence. It means to endure steadfastly, right? You don't stop. And, and you think about that persistence that should be applied with how you pray for others. I love that. Right, so another question that we need to constantly kind of evaluate or ask ourselves to help ourselves evaluate where we are in life is when you think about your prayer life, whatever it looks like, how much of your prayer life is dedicated to prayers about yourself and how much of your prayer life is dedicated to others? And I'm not, let me clarify, I'm not discouraging praying for yourself. Do that, please, consistently. But, but part of what we need to see here and what is being taught here is that absolutely it needs to be filled with a persistent, unending praying for others, for all the Lord's people. And so what, what does that look like? Let, let me give you some suggestions, right? It, it's almost like you just kind of draw concentric circles that get a little bit wider and wider. Start with your home, right? Whoever is in your home, roommate, Spouse, child, parents, pray persistently with an enduring steadfastness for those people. Right? Pray together. Cover the people that you live with, that you love, those closest to you, with a continual approach toward prayer. Think about your neighbors, those that you see every day, people who live down your hall, people who live down your street. We should all, as believers, listen, we should all know the names of our neighbors and their stories. And at the very least should know how to pray for them. Right? And so if we don't, man, that's, that's a good action step to take. Go over to their house today, introduce yourself, ask them how you can pray for them. Right? We should absolutely think about where God has placed us and pray for those people. You think about the other spheres of influence, could be your classes, could be your, your people at work that you're gonna see, your colleagues, right? Wherever God leads you on a regular basis, the, the stranger that you see at a gas station, wherever you are in your daily routine, pray for those people. Pray for your church family, right? This is part of why we gather on a weekly basis, even though virtually, right? We do these regular prayer meetings. We send out these prayer requests of how we can be praying for each other. In your discipleship groups, this should be a main fixture of your time together to, to be able to pray for one another, to lift each other up in prayer continually, consistently. And we need to understand that it's not just praying for our immediate church family, but for all the Lord's people, the church universal. Right? So think about how that could maybe change how you even filter current events and news. The next time you see a troubling headline that 
that might speak to international affairs and chaos and all this other stuff. And you hear reports of protests in Hong Kong or concerns about China or relationships with Russia or North Korea. Stop and pray. Because there are believers there. I assure you, brothers and sisters are living in that context. Pray for them. Keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Be persistent in that. Now, if we're going to do that well, you know what that means for us individually is we need to be willing to be open and transparent about how people can pray for us, right? We, we need to let others, we need to let our brothers and sisters, our, our family members, our spouses, whatever it is, to know what's going on, to be, to be open, to be honest, to be vulnerable and say, I really need you to pray for this in order for us to be able to live out exactly what Paul is teaching here. And, and Paul, I think, kind of steps into that and he models it. So after he tells him, he says, hey, pray for all the Lord's people, pray also for me. Let me give you a personal request. And I love this request. All right, here's Paul and he says, pray also for me that I would fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I would make it known fearlessly as I should. So let's, let's kind of recap Paul's journey at this moment to just better understand how we could potentially implement this and follow his example in our own lives. Okay, so, so Paul's in prison, hence the phrase ambassador in chains. And if you go back and read the story of Acts, you know that he is consistently persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, and now he's appealing to, to the imperial courts. And so he's being moved up along this process to where he's truly going to be testifying and presenting and defending himself in front of all these Roman officials and authorities, okay? Now, now here's what's kind of interesting about this, is that this is exactly what was foretold. This, this is his specific calling. So you go back and read the conversion story in Acts chapter 9, right? And, and, and Paul has that encounter with Jesus on the Damascus road, and then he's blind and he's waiting. God goes to Ananias and tells Ananias, now go and heal this man. And Ananias is like, wait, the one that's been killing people and throwing people? And God's like, yes, that's the one. And, and it's like, okay, I don't really want to. But God says, go, because he is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. <laughs> that's exactly what's happening, right? He's literally standing before governors and officials and kings, right? So part of what's happening here when Paul says that is Paul has a clear understanding of God's call on his life. Do you? Right? Do, do you have that same clarity? If you don't, that's a great thing to pray for, right? To, to have a clear understanding of what God is using you for, where he is sending you, what journey you are on, and the significance that should be attached to it, right? That's what Paul is demonstrating with this request. And so we should as well, a clear understanding and a commitment and a faithfulness to pursue what God has called us to. Now, notice what Paul asked for with an awareness of that calling. All right, so, so first of all, he's an ambassador in chains. Now that's actually kind of an oxymoron because ambassadors were actually supposed to be afforded certain rights and privileges that would prevent them from being imprisoned. Okay, but, but this is a different type of an ambassadorship, right? He is in the ambassador of the gospel. And so he's not afforded those rights. And so now the insignia of the church and the early movement of the church is actually chains and imprisonment. And so it's somewhat of an oxymoron, which serves as a good reminder to us that a lot of times the gospel is more affiliated with the powerless than the powerful. It's a good word of caution for us as we think about our expectations in our culture today, but that's a whole other sermon. 
right? So here he is, he's, he's in chains, which means that his pursuit of his call has created adversity, right? And so we should expect that as well, right? Pursuing God's call is rarely easy, but it's almost always meaningful. And so here is, here is Paul confronted with this adversity, and what does he pray for? Does he pray for safety? Does he pray for release? Pray for my health? No. Pray that I would fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, because that's why I'm here. In the midst of this adversity, man, what would happen if we did the same? Right? To, to recognize that whatever God has called you to do, right, that you're not at your school just to get a degree and earn some grades, right? You're not just at your job to earn a paycheck and maintain some standard of living. You are there so that you may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. That's why we're there. Right? Think about what this world and what our lives would look like if we lived into that, stepped into those, those situations with that sort of confidence, with that sort of, of boldness and courage, and how significant that could really be and should be, right? That's exactly what Paul is demonstrating, a fearlessness to make known the mystery of the gospel. So let me ask you a question. Are you? Would you say, man, my, my life is pursuing that specific responsibility to fearlessly make known the mystery of this gospel, right? If, if not, then, then let me suggest a couple things to you. Number one, make this your number one prayer request. For the next two weeks, the next month, whoever it is that you go to for prayer, your, your spouse, your loved ones, your family, your discipleship group, whoever it is, make this your request. Hey, y'all, would y'all pray for me that I would fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel? Say it. Commit it to prayer and have others pray that for you and let's all be praying that for each other and let's watch and see what happens. And as you're going through those prayer requests and you're thinking about that, identify why, why am I not fearlessly making it known if you aren't. And if you are able to identify like what those fears are, those hesitations, those trepidations, those concerns. I and mean, now you're able to take those fears and you'll be able to submit them and say, okay, this is what is the adversity that I'm feeling. Fear of rejection, fear of ridicule, fear of, of loss of time. I'm, I'm, I just don't have the energy. Whatever it is, man, whatever are those things that are preventing them, let's identify those so that we can move forward. Now, the reality is, is that once we identify those fears, a lot of times we're gonna sit there and we're gonna say, you know what? I, I, I want to do this, but I just don't know that I will. And if we're not careful, it's gonna feel optional. And in reality, it's a necessity. And Paul explains that to us because he says, pray that I would fearlessly make it known as I should. That one little simple word, should, literally means necessary. Another way to translate it, as is accumbent upon me. This is not an option for me. This is a necessity. And church, now more than ever, we should see it as a necessity because the mystery of the gospel allows us to walk into this broken world, these broken lives, our broken selves, and say there is hope. 
right? There, there is this God who loves, who has given his one and only son to set us free from the bondage of sin and death. And if we would confess with our mouths that he is the Lord and believe in our hearts that Jesus has been raised from the grave, we will be with him forever. This is the mystery that has been revealed and it is good news and it is absolutely necessary for the world to hear it. The world can no longer afford to have a church that sees it is optional. We should declare it fearlessly as we should. You know anybody like that? Man, there, there are a handful of people in my life that I feel like just so powerfully live out this verse. And there are people that every time I meet them, it's like they're just oozing Jesus and they can't help but talk about him. There's, there's one friend of mine, I'm not gonna mention his name because I don't think he would want that kind of attention, but every time we gather, he's the sort of guy that if we're out to eat, he's gonna stop and talk to the waiter or the waitress and he's gonna pray for him, like right there. I'm like, hey, can I just pray for you today? And they're like, oh, sure. And then he prays for him. And if their opportunity presents itself, he'll share the gospel with them. It's just, I mean, it's just who he is. And so he and I were meeting for lunch one day and he was talking about this time that he was out at another restaurant and he, he looked across the restaurant and he saw this guy kind of in this dramatic exchange with somebody else that was with him. And the Lord just kind of laid in this guy on his heart. So he just kind of started praying for him there in the restaurant. And then as he was leaving, he saw that same guy out in the parking lot, kind of again in this, this somewhat dramatic exchange with the person that was with him. And so my friend walked up to him and he said, man, this is gonna feel very random and awkward, but I feel like I should just offer, can I just give you a hug? Anybody done that recently? Just gone up and randomly offered to hug a stranger? Um, and the guy literally started weeping and fell into his arms. And the friend that was with him came to my friend and said, I can't believe you did that. His daughter is sick in the hospital and just got some terrible news again today. He needed that. <laughs> my friend's telling me this story and he starts kind of getting emotional telling him because you know that, that's it. You know, like all I want to do each and every day is to do my best to make sure other people know the love of Jesus. <laughs> so it's not like we have to go out and stand on a street corner and hit people over the head. It's just being sensitive to the spirits leading in that moment and being faithful in word and deed to demonstrate the love of Jesus. And it is absolutely necessary that we do it, church. And so how do we find ourselves arriving at that point? I think the only way forward is for us to be overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. It's not a formula. It's not a guidebook, right? It's not a one step, two, three, whatever. It, it is for us to embrace each and every moment to say, let me be overwhelmed by the presence of God because when I am, I can't help but see this as necessary. And so that's what I want us to do. I want us to spend some time this morning inviting him in, receiving him into our lives, understanding that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has brought us into this incredible relationship with the loving Father, and that Spirit intercedes for you even in this very moment. And the more we're caught up in that, and the more we're swept away in His presence, the more we're going to want to share that good news with the world around us. So let us no longer see it as optional, but let us see it as a necessity that transfixes us 
into a fearlessness to make known this wonderful and beautiful mystery. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And I would just ask, Father, that whatever season any of us are in, Father, that in this moment you would once again remind us of the incredible power that comes with your presence. Father, that you would remind us that we are not coming before you as some distant deity who is uncaring or apathetic, but that you are a loving Father that we can cry out to you as your children. And Father, I pray that deep within our hearts, even on days and moments where we don't know what to pray for, that this Spirit would intercede on our behalf so that we can be brought into a greater understanding and awareness of your will. So Father, help us to pray for one another. Help us to pray for those in our homes and for those in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, our schools, here in this church, in the church universal. Help us to always remember to pray for all the Lord's people. And Father, for each and every one of us, whatever you've called us to, help us to fearlessly make known the mystery of this good news. Father, help us to declare it fearlessly wherever you lead us, as we should. So Father, we know in order to pursue these things, the only way forward is to be overwhelmed by your Spirit. So come, Father, fill this place. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.